It is an honor and a privilege to be here this morning. I bring greetings from the other Emmanuel Baptist Church. Uh, I'm pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Overland Park uh, in the Kansas City area. And uh, Dr. Branch is preaching for me this morning. And uh, I uh, appreciate him so very much. He's a dear friend. And uh, the best thing I can say about him is he's from Georgia. Praise God. And uh, the Bible says, uh, we're both Georgia Bulldog fans. And the Bible does say in the book of Philippians, beware of dogs. And so that's a word to the University of Alabama for this coming year's football championship, all right? It's great to be here. Uh, I've heard so much about your church uh, over the years and then recently and just very grateful to be here this morning. I want to talk to you this morning about trying to tell who's who. And I want you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we'll look there in just a moment. I used to play indoor soccer. And one Tuesday night when we were playing another team, our team showed up with blue jerseys. They were kind of dark blue jerseys. The other team showed up with blue jerseys. A little bit lighter than our jerseys, but still blue. The game started and uh, it was utter chaos. Uh, Our guys would get the ball and pass it to who they thought was their own teammate, but it was the other guys. Uh, And and then I would go in and take the ball away from somebody and found out that's my own teammate. It was utter chaos. And finally, about three minutes in, the, the referee stopped the game and said, all right, this is nuts. Nobody can tell who's on whose team. Uh, you guys, and told the other team, go put on white jerseys. Uh, it, is, it, was, it was difficult to tell who was who, who belonged to which of those two teams. Well, Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 13 that illustrates the difficulty of figuring out who's who. So the story is told in Matthew 13, look in verse 24. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares or weeds also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Well, do you want us then to go and gather them up? In other words, tear the tares out. He said to them, No, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I'll say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Well, on down in that chapter, uh, and I'm, I'm glad this happened, the disciples come to Jesus privately and they say, Lord, what did that mean? And I'll be honest with you, uh, I read the Bible sometimes and I say, Lord, what does that mean? Ever been there? And so the disciples had exactly that experience. And so they come and they ask for an explanation and we are blessed to have it. Look in verse uh, 36. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. And he answered and said, and so he's going to identify in that story, which, uh, which component, which person, which uh, party stands for whom. 
He says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus himself. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares, the weeds, are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest, that's the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Therefore, and now he's going to summarize the story and tell us the spiritual meaning of it. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, or those who practice is a good translation also, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In this story, Jesus told about two groups, two groups of people. And these two groups are in any and every church. The first group I want to call the inside insiders. Talking about the wheat plants here, the good seed that are sowed uh, by the disciples of the Lord. The inside insiders are those that are, they are inside the church. They are, they, they're part of the church. They're committed to the, the church itself. They attend, they do ministry, they're involved. They're inside the church. But more than that, and more importantly than that, they are inside the kingdom of God. In other words, it's not just they've joined the organization of the church. They've joined the family of God. They've been born again. They've experienced a change of heart. They've acknowledged Christ as Lord of their lives. And so on the inside, they are true followers of Jesus. And they're also inside his church. I call them the inside insiders. But there's a second group, and these are the tares. And I want to call these, these are the inside outsiders. Now, these folks are also inside the church. They attend. They may even be involved in positions of leadership or service in the church. And they are deeply embedded in the church, but they are not really members of the kingdom of God. They're church members, but they're not children, sons and daughters of the king. They have never been born by the spirit of God. They've never been regenerated. They've never bowed their knee in their heart of hearts to Jesus Christ. And so they, they are the tares, the inside insiders and the inside outsiders. Jesus tells us in this parable that for a period of time, at least, they're going to look a whole lot alike. So how do you tell who's who? That's, that's the message this morning. Well, number one, I want you to consider this. What does an inside outsider look like? The inside outsider, that's, that's the tear. First thing I would say is this, an inside outsider looks amazingly like an inside insider. The tear, the false disciple, looks a whole lot like the wheat, the true disciple. That word for tares in the translation we read is the Greek word zizania, and it refers to a weed. It refers to a weed that resembles wheat. It has the appearance of wheat. It grows exclusively in cultivated fields. Have you ever heard the term well, when he was young, he sowed his wild, what? His wild oats. Well, just like there are wild oats in the United States in our fields, these were wild wheat, and they looked just like wheat. 
The ultimate difference, though, was this. The difference between the tares and the wheat was in what was produced. Because the real thing, the real thing, the wheat, it grew to a point and then began to grow ahead and then began to produce wheat, which was then harvested. The tares look exactly the same until they get to the point of, you would think, you would expect them to begin to produce wheat seeds on the end, but they produce actually nothing. And so the inside outsiders are like that. They look like Christians on the outside, but on the inside, they're false. They're phony. The Bible describes a person like this as a hypocrite. As you look at the Bible, in the New Testament especially, there are three categories of hypocrites. First of all, there are the pharisaical hypocrites. And these are the people who, they love positions and authority and prestige in the church. They judge others for all the things they do wrong, but they are unable to see the things that they do wrong in their own lives, the glaring inconsistencies in their own lives. Pharisees, pharisaical hypocrites. Number two, there are doctrinal hypocrites. These are people that love to talk about doctrine all the time. And please don't misunderstand. I love doctrine. I teach at a seminary. We teach doctrine. Doctrine is good and it's important. But these are people who just, just want to talk about doctrine. And usually it's one focused subject and that's all they want to do is talk about that. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's the rapture. Sometimes it's, uh, it's the Masons, sometimes it's Roman Catholicism, sometimes it's Calvinism, sometimes it's Arminianism, whatever it may be. And all they want to do is talk about that one thing. But it, when it gets down to the part in the sermon, when the pastor begins to apply the message and the doctrine to the heart, that's when they turn it off. Because the doctrine has never made any difference in their lives. The third kind of hypocrite is the immoral hypocrite. And if you see this guy at church, at church he looks squeaky clean. But if you follow him around during the week, you find it's a different thing. They don't live out what they look like. Now the thing about hypocrites is on the outside, hypocrites tend to look a whole lot like true believers. And it's often hard to tell who's the hypocrite and who isn't. I mean, it really is. It's hard to tell. And so maybe, maybe that little poem, maybe you've heard this poem. There's so much good in the worst of us, and there's so much bad in the best of us, that it hardly becomes any of us to talk about the rest of us. And so it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's difficult sometimes to tell. Another thing I notice is this. The, the, the inside outsiders have a more developed root system than the inside insiders. It's very interesting, that word zizania, it refers to that, that wild wheat plant, and th these were farmers that Jesus was telling the story to. They knew exactly what he was talking about. That zizania plant, botanists tell us that, that it has a, an incredible root system. And in fact, the roots of the zizania, the wild wheat, wrap themselves around the roots of the wheat and inside it so they they take nutrients that belong to the wheat they take water that belongs to the wheat and if you try to pull up the weed guess what comes with it the wheat comes with it and so they have a very very developed root system you know that's that's true of 
of inside outsiders, people that are inside the church but never been born again. They have, they're deeply embedded within the church. They have usually very deep relationships and friendships. You may even be friends with some of these folks and you, you may not know if they're believers or not. But the thing about these folks is, you see, they don't have a relationship with God and so human relationships are all they have. And so they come to church not so much to worship God, but they come to church to make friends. Everything's on a horizontal level for them. They do not come to try to live, learn how to live a holy life. And so because of their developed root system, the tares roots, they take moisture and nutrients that should have gone to the wheat. Now this is important. Because our churches today, I believe, are filled up with carnal, spoiled, rotten church members. Not everybody, but there are some in every church. And they're always getting their feelings hurt. They're always wanting attention. They're always drawing attention to themselves. They're all, there's always a crisis. And the pastors and the deacons and the Sunday school teachers spend 90% of their time trying to help these people get over whatever they got offended at and therefore end up having to neglect the true children of God. We knock ourselves out trying to placate them. Maybe the problem is, isn't just that they're carnal Christians, maybe they've never been truly saved. I would say finally they are the most dangerous people in the church because look at verse 41. He, Jesus calls them stumbling blocks, Toscandala in the Greek, from which we get the word scandal. Something that causes people to stumble. They are stumbling blocks and those who practice lawlessness. They are dangerous because of these two traits. First of all, they, they practice lawlessness. They claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. They claim that their lives belong to God. But listen to me, they, 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 they have no care at all for the will of God expressed in scripture. They do not have any interest in allowing the Holy Spirit to guide their minds, their intellects, to control their emotions, to give power to their affections. They do not look to God for guidance with the goals of their lives. They, they, they have no sense of what they think is this pleasing to God or not. And so, they have nothing of God to rule over their relationships and over their, their own lives. And so as a result, their lifestyles do not match their profession of faith. Others within the church especially and outside the church look at them and they look good on the outside, but they see that there's something missing, which is consistency. And they, they, they look at that and they assume that they're the real thing. And then, well, what happens? Well, let's look at the second trait. They become stumbling blocks to others. In verse 41, it says, they are stumbling blocks. They cause, they cause believers to stumble in their faith, especially young believers. Now, if you've been a believer a long time, you should be strong enough in your faith that when you see someone stumble in their faith, uh, stumble into whatever type of sin it may be, you realize, well, God is still on the throne. Word of God is still true. Jesus is still Lord. 
And my faith, my faith wasn't in people anyway. But young Christians, young Christians may not have gotten that yet. And so they see these people in the church who live lives of, calls it lawlessness here. And they wonder, he's a leader in the church. He, he comes all the time. He's been a Christian way longer than I have. If this is Christianity, maybe you can just have it back. But there are also stumbling blocks to unbelievers. Inside outsiders are a terrible advertisement for the kingdom of God. Because what they're saying is, Jesus really doesn't make any difference in your life. I grew up in a church, a Baptist church, in fact, where uh, I, I don't really remember hearing the gospel message Christ died for my sins, rose again. I need to repent and believe on Christ. I, I don't ever recall hearing that. But there was a man in that church. He at one time served as chairman of deacons, I know that. And um, at about the age of 13 or 14, I learned that this man was also, he had a job, but on the side he was running a loan shark operation uh, to inner city uh, minorities in Atlanta and uh, he would loan them money and if they couldn't pay he would send thugs to beat them up I was 14 years old I had not been converted and uh, I'll be honest I was looking for any uh, any reason to leave the church all right but boy that was a reason and I, I remember thinking if that's Christianity you can have it and how many, how many people have stumbled over seeing folks like that man? I will say that their future prospects for inside outsiders don't look good. <laughs> look in verse 40. It says, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they'll gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, the tares, the inside outsiders. And he'll cast them into the furnace of fire, and that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus says here that in the end, at the judgment, there will be a separation between those who are true believers and those who are false believers. There will be a separation. And then he says there will also be a, a, a destruction because he says they're going to go to a place of, 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 of pain and gnashing of teeth and darkness. In 1997, two French soldiers were walking across the battlefield where the Battle of Verdun occurred in 1916 during World War I. It was a horrible battle. Uh, hundreds of thousands were uh, killed and injured. And uh, as they were walking across the battlefield, they were killed. This was in 1997 that they were killed. You know how they were killed? A shell from the original Battle of Verdun from World War I, 81 years later, it had been buried for 81 years and through wind or rain or whatever, erosion had occurred and the shell was exposed enough so that when those two men walked through there, one of them stepped on it and it exploded. 81 years later, there are people Jesus is speaking of here that may live their entire lives thinking, I'm okay I'm fooling everybody. 
but they will get to the end of their lives and their hypocrisy will be exposed and there will be destruction, utter destruction. So what do we do with the inside outsiders? Well, I'll tell you what we want to do. We want to get them out. Amen? Let's get them out of the church. Let's have a McCarthy-esque trial. And everybody that we think is maybe not a Christian, let's, let's run them through the, through the, through the chute and um, let's judge them. And by the way, I want to be the judge. The fact of the matter is, each one of us probably would like to be the judge and to, uh, to make a decision as to who's who. But it's tougher than you think to judge accurately. Because as I said, sometimes a wheat looks like a tear. But sometimes that wheat that looks like a tear is really a young Christian who has stumbled for a period of time because of seeing a hypocrite and he's just getting back on his feet but you don't know all that backstory he's just getting back to a life with God a man named uh, Ralph Swingholm was from Florida and he was in Atlanta visiting a theme park probably six flags over Georgia and he saw a young woman who was how shall we say uh, much muchly endowed he saw a young lady with a t-shirt on standing over there with her hands folded across her chest. And he said to his wife, would you look at that? Because he'd seen, and she had the words H-A-R-L-O-T, harlot, right there on her chest. And the fellow said to his wife, he said, can you believe that? I mean, not only is she one, but she's advertising it in a family, you know, a family place. And his wife turned to look, and by this time the lady's arms were down by her side. And what her, what her, her t-shirt actually read was Charlotte, North Carolina. I would just say that um, it, it's tougher than you think to figure out who's who. You See, you might judge someone to be a tear, but actually they just have not grown in the, an area that that you've really grown in. Maybe there's an area that God has really convicted you of. Maybe it's the area of pride. And uh, God has done a great work in your heart in that area. Now, there are other areas that he hasn't done quite so much work on, and you're not maybe even aware of those. But you see another Christian, and this person you judge has all this pride in their life. And you think, well, how could they be a Christian and have that type of pride? That's ungodly. That's unholy. But what you don't know is that, yes, there are other areas in that Christian's life that God has been working on that you, you cannot even see. In fact, they're probably the areas in your life that are offensive to many Christians. And so the fact of the matter is it's tougher than you think to judge accurately. Plus, it's risky business, as I said Verse 39, he said, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with it. And so true believers are sometimes damaged when Christians start setting themselves up as judges and people are misjudged, or when a Christian's relationship with a tear clouds his spiritual judgment. So God's got a better idea. Look in verse 30. He says, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And Jesus said that this is the better way. What does he mean here? He means here, he means here that we should be patient with one another, that we should let God work in the hearts of those around us, that we should teach the Bible, teach the Bible, 
disciple one another and live holy lives. By the way, Jesus is not saying here, he is not contradicting himself because in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, Jesus talks about someone who uh, they, have, they have sinned and it's, 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 it's a serious sin and a Christian goes to them and confronts them about it, which is the way to deal with that one-on-one. 95% of conflicts end right there, one-on-one. Confront this person about it. Uh, if, if they will not repent, he says, take someone with you. And if they still will not repent over a period of time, he says, then kind of turn them over to the elders of the church and the church should expel them. Does there, is there a place for church discipline? You better believe there is, yes. But we're talking here about someone whose life appears on the outside to be moral and uh, even perhaps holy to a degree, and yet on the inside, they're not truly saved. And so I want to close the message this morning with an appeal to the inside outsiders who are here. And I want you to stop and take just a bit of time to focus on the question that I'm about to ask you. And before I ask it, could I just remind you that God knows every heart here this morning. God knows who you really are. God knows what he's done in your heart and what he hasn't. I want you to ask yourself, what has Christ produced in my life? You see, the, the lesson of this parable is that the key difference, the thing that makes a tear a tear, is that the tear doesn't produce anything. It looks like wheat, but it doesn't produce anything. The wheat is wheat because it does produce something. It produces grain that's helpful, blesses others. What is what is Christ done in your life? How has he changed you? Do you have, an, and I'm not asking all of them all the time, but does God produce in your life, for example, the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Is there love? Is there joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, these things? Is the character of Christ being formed in your heart? Ask yourself that question right now. Because if the answer is, well, David, nothing, that's what God's done in my life. I really can point, you would say, I really can point to, to nothing that makes me any different from a non-Christian out there. And could I tell you, it's going to be bad at the judgment. Jesus says, first gather up the tares and bind them. He says, cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I... Um, I, um, I've had some surgeries uh, over the years. And I have learned, by the way, I'm old enough to have learned that when you start talking about your surgeries, everyone wants to share with you about their surgeries. So, <laughs> and hey, I'm, I'm all ears at the end of the service, okay? But I, uh, I, I, I tore my knee up, tore the ACL, severed the ACL, and um, ripped cartilage in my right knee. And so the doctor had to go in and replace the ACL and had to use metal screws. I've got screws in my knee. I can, I can feel them right now. And 
You want to feel? You want to feel? Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I broke my shoulder skiing on ice, which is not what I would recommend doing. I broke my shoulder, and the doctor had to wire that back together. And then uh, I had to have the whole left shoulder replaced over here. And, uh, and so that's another kind of metal. And the doctor said, listen, if you can tear up this knee by the end of the year, I can give you a special on that left knee. <laughs> and I actually did. I, I tore that, but it, just the cartilage, you know. And so in three of my four major joints, I've got metal. The nurses warned me when I got the knee surgery, uh, and again with the shoulder, said, now be, you need to tell people you have this metal in your body when you're about to have an MRI. You know, magnetic resonance imaging, right? Said so if, they, if they crank that thing up too high, you know, you're going to go in that thing and it's going to suck all this metal out of you. And I said, really? Oh, my. And so, uh, you know, I have this big sign that I wear around my, uh, around my head uh, when I go in to see the doctor and I'm going to get an MRI. You know, turn it on low. Uh, that would be bad, you know, to have all that stuff sucked out of you. I'll tell you something about this, uh, this moment that Jesus is talking about here, though. It's, it's not going to be it's not going to be good. It's not going to be then. It won't be humorous. What I just told you, that was humorous, but this won't be humorous. Because these people who have thought themselves part of the body of Christ, at the final judgment, they are going to be extracted from the body. Because they were never a part of the living body, this, this metal is not really a part of the living David. It's just inside me. Well, these people, these inside outsiders who've never been truly born again, the Bible says at the judgment, these people who have been deeply embedded in churches all their lives are going to be extracted and they're going to face judgment. An attorney was representing a man who was accused of murder. And he was doing the best he could to offer a defense for his client for killing this man. But he'd come to the end of the trial. All he had was the closing arguments, and it looked very bad for his client. The only shred of hope that he had was that the prosecution had never been able to produce the body of uh, the alleged deceased. And so, you know, they accused him of killing somebody, but they never found the body, never produced it. And so this attorney, he settled on a, on a daring strategy for his closing arguments, closing statement to the jury. His final words went something like this. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you must remember that throughout the trial, the uh, prosecution was never able to produce the body of the alleged deceased victim. Then he said, well, I have an announcement. If you will look at the rear door of the courtroom... In just a moment, you will see the so-called deceased victim walk through that door very much alive. And he stopped, and he turned. He looked at the door, and he waited in silence for a few very uh, tense seconds. And uh, the whole jury turned to look. And... Um, 
After a few seconds, he said, well, you need to excuse me. When I asked you to look at the door and watch as the victim entered, he said, every one of you turned to look. That very fact proves that in your minds, there was significant doubt, significant doubt existed as to whether or not a crime had even been committed, much less whether my client had committed it. And therefore, I suggest that you have to, you must find my client not guilty. Well, man, the courtroom just erupted. And the judge banged for order. He gave instructions to the jury. And they went out and did their deliberations. And, and the, the attorney felt pretty good about this. I mean, he felt like it had been an absolute 180 with the jury. And the, he just said, this is a slam dunk now. My, my guy is going to get off. But the jury came back in. And when the foreman handed the verdict to the judge and the judge read, guilty as charged on all counts, uh, he, he was stunned after... After the uh, trial was over, the attorney went up to the foreman of the jury and asked him, said, let me ask you a question. When I, when I, when I told that story and I, I, I told you that the, the deceased victim was going to come in the back door, every person on your jury turned and looked because I was watching. And the foreman of the jury said, yes, every member of the jury turned to look. But your client did not turn to look. Sometimes it's just hard to pretend. Sometimes, sometimes it's just hard to pretend. And if I could just say to you this morning that if you are here and you have been pretending to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, it is time for you to stop pretending. You can experience life from God because God's in the business of turning tares uh, in, into wheat. And so I, I want to invite you, if you're here and you're an inside outsider, I want to encourage you right now as we go to God in prayer, I want to encourage you to really, it's time to do business with God. Would you bow in prayer, please?